to me, there is no universal standard to beauty. It is a feeling, in my opinion. It is a sense of awe. It is a sense of something beyond yourself when you see that. I think that feeling engenders beauty to me. I think spirituality is the humbleness for you to submit yourself to something greater, to the bigger unknown. It's the courage to take comfort, not knowing everything. I'd like to think that we are part of the universe. We don't come from the universe and then return to it. We, before we existed, during our existence, and after our death, we are always part of the universe. And therefore, I was there at the beginning. I was the creation, just like you. We all are. All right, Zhiqi,、uh, welcome to the show, everybody. This is Zhiqi, the co-founder and COO of Resource Fashion SaaS platform that is revolutionizing global sourcing and manufacturing to reimagine the fashion supply chain. Yeah, thank you. It's my big pleasure to be here speaking with you guys. We officially started, I would say, last January, and we pivoted three, four times since then. We started our current product end of last December, and right now we're building the simplest way for brands to start and scale their fashion production. It's a SaaS platform revolutionizing global sourcing and manufacturing. So, Zhiqiu, in the fashion industry, according to you, what is beauty from your perspective? What do you regard as beautiful, and what even is beauty? Is there a universal definition of it? How do you even approach it? How do you even judge it? How do you even measure it? I think to me, there is no universal standard to beauty. It is a feeling, in my opinion. It is a sense of awe. It is a sense of something beyond yourself when you see that. I think that feeling engenders beauty to me, and it's similar to what I see as art. Because it's hard to say what is art, what is not art, and the common theme that I see when I view something as art is it engenders a sense of respect, a sense of something bigger than me inside myself. Pretty well said. What's your take, Hanson? My take is that beauty is an evolutionary trait in something that we find desirable for some deep, perhaps poorly understood reason that we believe. We have this feeling, a positive feeling, that something that is beautiful is advantageous to the survival and propagation of our species. So, if you think about the most simple forms of beauty, people can be beautiful, and we're deeply social animals. So, people are our family, our friends, our lovers. Beautiful people tend to be healthy people, or generous people, or kind people. That's beauty in its simplest form. You find the same simple form of beauty that's advantageous for survival in the environment. We tend to, when they surveyed people across all cultures across the world, and asked them to describe the ideal, most beautiful landscape, some of the themes were access to water, some kind of lush landscape full of some kind of life. Usually there's grass, usually there's trees, usually there's birds. All of these things, again, used to be things that you just subliminally found to be desirable. Because ultimately, evolutionarily, that's advantageous for us. I think beauty is a byproduct of a survival instinct. Seed, what's your take? I think beauty is an illusion where you find some kind of connection 
that resonates with you. So it's intrinsically subjective. I don't believe there's something like objectively beautiful. It's basically an illusion where you think this applies to the general public, but it doesn't, but it re resonates with you. For me, a good example is a culture. I find beauties in a lot of cultures, especially in Chinese traditional cultures, but this is not objectively beautiful, but some piece of information really resonates with me, with my background. For me, that's what beauty is. See, I want to push on that, the specifics there, right? You said it's yep. something that one is subjective yep. uh, and two, it resonates with you. Yep. I think resonating sounds a little vague, right? A lot of things can resonate with you in good and bad ways. Can you be more specific on what kind of resonance would come across as beautiful? For me, it's always a feeling that portals you to somewhere you don't, doesn't really belong. Portals me back to ancient China. It portals me back to some kind of feeling that I imagine the, someone wrote this poem also had 2,000 years ago. And it portals you to something, to somewhere that uh, you cannot really get to physically. So for me, that what, that's what resonance is. I don't know if that is even more vague, but... It's interesting. And maybe that's where the illusion is as well, because you can never get there. I use the word illusion for, for this portal effect, also for the fact, I think, oftentimes, at least for me, if I find something beautiful, I want to advertise it, right? It's this dilemma that I know it's subjective, but I also want to get acknowledgement. This is beautiful. And I want to publicize it. I want to get other people on the board with me to appreciate it. It's an illusion because it's subjective. I'm curious to hear your origin stories. So you're from Chengdu, which is the, the mm -hmm. same city that Seed is from, which I think had something to do with you being on this podcast. So I'm curious, how was growing up in Chengdu and what was your favorite food there? Favorite food? I guess if you don't say hot pot, it's not doing Chengdu justice over here. I grew up here until I came to school in the U.S. when I was 17. So have a definitely a strong and special connection to the city where I am from. And I do feel like Chengdu Nis has a lot, have a lot in common in general. I tend to connect and click very well with Chengdu people the moment I meet them wherever we are. I think one part is our language. Chengduhua itself is very funny in many ways. I don't speak Sichuanhua a lot these days, only when I speak to my parents. But every time I do it, I naturally will have a sense of fu funniness. I think people are very funny when they speak Sichuanhua. There are a lot of very funny words that only have Sichuanhua version. I think that also speaks a lot about the character. So I grew up with my mom mostly working in another city. So I grew up with my dad a lot. My mom would come back home every month for a weekend. So I go to airport a lot as a kid. Every, every month we would go to airport to pick her up and send her off. And I remember there's a big slogan right next door to the airport saying that meaning that Chengdu is a city where you come and you never want to leave. And that su summarizes it pretty well. Well, Chongqing is a place you went and you're too tired to leave because some imam. I knew there was going to be some shit talking in this podcast about Chongqing. So for our listeners, Chengdu and Chongqing, for the longest time, were both part of Sichuan, actually. So Chongqing was the probably the second largest city behind Chengdu as part of Sichuan for most of history, or recent history at least. But as of the past, I guess, 20-something years, Chongqing went independent and is no longer part of Sichuan. And <laughs> I guess now I know why, right? We just talked about how Sichuan people are really laid back and really chill. And that's never what Chongqing was known for. If anything, mm -hmm. we're known for, let's just say, very hot-blooded, impulsive, but loyal people is the stereotype anyway. 
I don't know if that's what they say in Chengdu. I'm sure they have a more negative <laughs> version of that. <laughs> but those are two rival cities, so we like to talk crap about each other. People always tend to joke about the rivalries between the two. It reminds me of, because I went to Duke, it reminds me of Duke and UNC. Whenever basketball season is up, people make jokes about the two so much. It's right. the type of thing where the two, two entities are very close to each other, both in the property or the physical location, as well as many of the characters. And the right. strong similarity creates this dynamic where people like to compare them to each other. Yeah, it's like a sibling rivalry. Right. Very related. We speak more or less the same dialect and we're more similar than we are different. Definitely. I think that's part, part of why. Well. Yeah. Chongqing Hot Pot is superior. I will not debate this on the show. That is the final opinion <laughs> of superposition. So she appreciate the background and the stories of your childhood. So if you, if Chengdu truly is a city that you visit and never want to leave, why'd you leave? What made you leave and study in the U.S.? What gave you the idea? From my part, I think I grew up First of all, always feeling extremely curious about the outside world. I would always be the first person to participate in any traveling abroad program during summer. So I went to Singapore with my classmates in elementary school. That was pretty much the first time I left China and was just so amazed by how different people live in different countries, the culture, the language. And there was just a huge sense of excitement that comes with being surrounded in people that look different from you and speak different language from you. So that feeling, I think, is very natural. It was never a question for me if I want to have that. Besides that, I started doing debate in high school with a lot of people who want to study abroad because the concept of debate is more of a Western thing. And we were doing British parliamentary debate. So that was my first interaction to a lot of more liberal and more freedom of speech sort of idea. And I also never really felt truly happy and belonging when I was in China in many ways. I feel like back in elementary school and prior to elementary school, I was definitely very different from most people. I remember in my first grade in elementary school, my math teacher always make fun of me because Everybody's like sitting like that, like very tied up because you have to put both of your hands on top of the table when you were sitting. You cannot, you're not supposed to put your hands anywhere else, but I on top that. of your table. And yeah. one of your hands have to be on top of the other hands. And there's even like an order of which one should be on top of which. It's extremely in order. And I remember I just hated that. And I, I just did not want to do that. And I think part of me just could not as well. So one thing my math teacher would always joke about me in front of many other classes and people is that like he, she's always writing on the blackboard. And sometimes when she turns back and she would see that on my desk, there was nobody. So I was gone essentially. And then she couldn't figure out where I was and realized that I was just playing with papers and pens underneath the desk. Just doing my own thing. <laughs> I feel like that illustrates very well about who I was born to be. And in the Chinese system, obviously that was not encouraged and that was not really what teachers and parents wanted you to be. And I think I always have this idea of wanting to belong and wanting to be accepted, wanting to be liked. 
So I gradually changed myself. I was a terrible kid in terms of grade, first and second grade. And starting from the third grade, I became to be one of the top students and teachers started to like me and I enjoy the amount of tension from teacher and really changed myself for to be liked in China. But I think fundamentally, I was never happy. I was never really feeling like oh, I was truly myself, especially when I entered middle school and high school. It was extremely even worse of a military style of living and learning compared to elementary school. So the idea of leaving behind this extremely orderly life and being able to live freely, meaning that going into a new place where I can choose a new identity and being free from anyone who know me, be free from my parents, my school system. That sounds really sexy and fascinating. Yeah, in yeah, short, a- how I decided to leave a city that nobody wants to leave. Yeah, that's interesting. I think the theme there, and I've heard this, some version of this story from a lot of other people I know, obeying and playing to the order is very valued in the education system in China and many aspects of society. Yeah, My follow-up yeah. there would be, did living in the U.S. deliver on that promise or did you find that it had its own set of caveats? It's hard to say w- whether the caveat comes from leaving China and coming to the U.S. or coming from the age I was in because I came here when I was 17 and I think between the age of 17 to your early 20s you go through a lot of changes and a big phase of self-discovery so imagine you grew up especially for people like us we grew up in a lot of conformity when you enter a entirely new country where there's nobody telling you what to do there's no teacher or professor ordering you to major in one thing or another, and you literally choose whatever you do, it, there's a, obviously a sense of freedom that you've been longing for and that felt amazing. But also, you thought that will give you a lot of individuality by itself, but it did not. Individuality was not there to be discovered. It is something you cultivate and you develop. And I think I was not able to spend many years of my first 17 years actually cultivating it because I was basically being shortcut into told what to do all the time. I didn't really have a lot of sense of self. I didn't really know what I would choose if I was given the choice and was not just being told what to do. So I spent a lot of my first few years in the U.S., I guess, figuring that out. And over time, I'm very happy with where I am. I would not do it in any other way, I would say. But it's hard to say if it's the U.S. that delivered that promise or it is the growth that happened to me during that period of time. Yeah, this is pretty interesting because she actually went to a sister school of my high school. So I definitely know what you're talking about when you're talking about military style. You went to the United States, you went to Duke, which obviously is a very good school. What did you study there? I studied public policy and data science. I was very intellectually curious about politics and how do you, like, what's the best way to make a positive impact in the public field? And Duke has really good public policy program. So I started learning more about it, really enjoyed some of the core classes. I remember one of which is about ethics and some of the most controversial policies that any policymakers could make related to prostitution, drug, all of those things, and really enjoyed a lot of the conversations. I think it has a lot of similarity towards high school debate, actually. That background is not a 
one would say a traditional entrepreneurship background. So what led you to entrepreneurship? Where did that come from? I think the entrepreneurship likely comes from my observation of my mom growing up. I think everybody's career choice or life choice definitely has a roots in how they grew up. And I grew, I grew up with my mom being a breadwinner. My mom has a very traditional trading company for clothes making and fashion. Actually, pretty much the legacy version of what we're doing. And my dad works for the government. And across the board, my mom always has a higher power <laughs> and just be much more respected by people in many ways because she makes more money. She brings in so much more wealth for our family. And she always hands out with much more cool people from the kids' view. And she always <laughs> has these cool clothes that she brings to my teachers and to my friends. So I just grew up really respecting her a lot, I think. and just feeling the ability to control her life as well. Sometimes I would spend my summer vacation with her living in Guangzhou and see that she can't grow up, she can't wake up at 9 a.m. And that's really amazing. Whereas my dad would always wake up at 8 a.m., 7 a.m. too, to be able to arrive at office on time. Nobody controls when my mom goes to office on time. But obviously she always finished work the, the latest. But to your kid's eyes, I think I just see a lot of freedom, a lot of opportunity, a lot of respect for what she does. So first of all, I think seeing my mom as an entrepreneur and getting a lot of benefits and goodness from it was very motivating to me. And also, obviously, entrepreneurship is not something most women would consider. But to me, that was never a question because I grew up with my mom being an entrepreneur. I have to admit, I didn't really think a lot about what comes next especially in my first two, three years, I just was really cherishing my finally world freedom and the ability to learn whatever I want. So I took a lot of random classes like acting, photography, some philosophy, public policy. And then one day I realized, okay, time to think about what next. And I took a gap year to really be able to figure out what I want. And I started my gap year really thinking that I want to do something in the public sector. I spent six months in Washington, D.C. I did some lobbying, some family philanthropy foundation, the Jewish Family Foundation, very random. Also worked with social enterprise incubator. So mostly in the public sector, using different ways to influence people's lives, trying to make positive impact. And what I realized is as a early 20-something, especially in Washington, D.C., where most things are happening in the public sector field, there's very little you can do tangibly to actually make a change. At the time when I started, I had no idea what I would actually be doing. But the first day I showed up, the earlier interns started to tell me what they were doing and what I will be doing. And I was told that I will be mostly running this sex toy e-commerce store for the company because they are basically testing out problems based and pinpointing sellers would have. And sex toy was a very big category at the time. So I spent four months basically running the e-commerce store, getting set up and from zero to one selling sex toy in China as a 20 year old at a time. I was going to say that might not be the most legal thing, but I don't know. That was a eye-opening experience to me. What the, for the products or the business? <laughs> Both sides. <laughs> Personally speaking, I just realized that this is so much more fun, like running my own thing, seeing something from zero to one. And 
if anything, this is what I would rather spend my time doing. And I just enjoy doing my own thing, my own way so much better. I guess that explains why I would be hiding behind the desk in grade one as well in elementary school. So from that moment, I learned that, okay, I want to start my own company as soon as possible. And there is some limitation where I need to have a job to sponsor my visa. So I came back to school and got a job, got visa, and there we go. Zichi, tell us more about Walden Theory. Was that your first thing that you started and how did that happen? After having done the internship in China, selling sex toys on Amazon, I learned how to sell on Amazon. And I came back to school. I was feeling really tired and jaded from the school system because in college, the things you do is pretty can be pretty boring. And every day it feels very similar, especially my school is in North Carolina. There isn't that much to do. So I was talking to my best friend at the time, and then we decided to try out sourcing product and selling on Amazon together. And it was a really fun period of time where we were looking for products that could sell. And one of our star perform high performing product was this magnetic key holder. And that product was doing really well. It's pretty much single-handedly was supporting all of our cost and we're pretty much profitable at the time. And another thing was like, I think towards the end, I was also having a meeting with the Duke University store and convinced the manager to source this product with the Duke logo on it. So that was pretty much the store. Yeah, it's pretty cool. So how did you identify like the product and how'd you like, did you start with a supplier and say, hey, what are all the things you make and then experiment? How'd you find that this was the winner? Yeah, so my friend did a lot of initial research actually, and we would come together to look at some of the potential products. So we would be looking at things that are looking very interesting, exciting on Taobao, which is a Chinese equivalent of Amazon, similarly. And we would look at the prices and having a team member in China buying it and testing things out if it's a good stuff like things that we would buy ourselves and we would create a listing in the US and enable an FBA which is fulfilled by Amazon would ship a very small number of quantity like 10 pieces to the US to the Amazon inventory system and then they will help distribute product whenever people buy and initially this is just some techniques about Amazon selling like <laughs> It's important to have reviews just as consumers, nobody would buy things that do not have any review. So I would always ask my friends to buy the first three to five and leave some review. And my experience was if a product has a potential, they would pick up after, after the first three to five review and purchase. People will start buying it and the really good product, they would have at least one to two, but to one to two purchase every day. And it is very important to bring product that is selling on Amazon yet because you want to have some sort of innovation to the market. It's not your real innovation, but I guess the innovation there was in discovery and truly bringing something that is not in, on the market yet. I know that on Amazon, it, right now, it, today it's becoming extremely competitive and very hard to win already. But at that time when we were doing it, it's still possible to find categories and areas that is not extremely crowded yet and be the first one to sell that product. And it's get the game is getting extremely nasty. Like once the product is selling well, other people are gonna come in and selling the same thing at lower price. And fundamentally, like since you don't own the supply, the actual production manufacturing of the product, you're just private labeling it. So it's very easy for anyone to 
come in and take your share of the pie. Yeah, makes sense. That's pretty cool, though. So what'd you do after you graduated? What was this first job? I believe it's at Deloitte. Yes. So I went to, I was at Deloitte consulting for one and a half year. I didn't really like it, to be frank. They, it's a very big company and it's a service company, professional service company. To me, there isn't that much to be said about it. Every day you are told to do certain things. And I was in good terms with all the people there, liked most of my bosses, but never really found it exciting and super passionate about what I was doing. So what led from Deloitte to your next thing? During the one year mark, which was 2020 summer, I started to feel like I cannot do this anymore. Those type of feeling where you just so dreaded to work every day and do not see the meaning of things you do and feeling like you're wasting your life every day. So everyone hated what they're doing. Tatiana were telling me that she quit her investment banking job. So I asked her out for coffee. We were both in New York and she was telling me that, okay, she quit her job. She's like searching for ideas. She knows she wants to do startup, but she doesn't know what it is. So she has been searching for ideas for a few months by herself. She would buy furnitures like use furnitures and store them all in her one bedroom place, trying to sell on Facebook marketplace to see if there's a market there, like doing all of these very heavy lifting sort of experiments. And from talking to her, I was just like, oh, this is interesting. There's, there are people that is doing these things where they don't know exactly what it is they're doing yet, but they are actively looking for a problem to solve. And I found that really exciting and really inspiring. So we started chatting more and started to see the possibility of us doing something together. And from then I we, from then we started to plan on building things together and we ran a passion project which is called ZNT Style. It's our initial. We started that passion brand in order to test out some other possible ideas. At the time we started on the idea of live stream a live stream shopping and the SaaS tools to enable that. And it's super big in China, the idea of some key opinion influencer helping a brand to sell their product. One, like one big and famous case is lipstick. They try to make the time window very short and the deal extremely good to get people to buy them. And they can sell a lot within a small, short period of time. And we were reading a lot of VC reports about it at the time and was thinking that maybe this would be the next big thing. And if that's the case, then there needs to be a lot of infrastructure to be built. We're definitely not the ones to build the live shopping platform, but we believe that the operation can be extremely heavy and might be very hard to find influencers or find people who can sell. So that's the idea we were starting with. But in order to really understand what comes in when it comes to live stream shopping. We decided to start this brand ZNT, ZNT Style Lab and we would do live stream every day in my home to wow. test things out. Were, so were you the influencer in this case? We had a friend who co-started this ZNT Lifestyle, ZNT Fashion Lab with us and she is much more influencer ready and she would be the person to do a lot, most of the actual showing things on the platform it, it's yeah it's a very interesting period of our startup life that it was the beginning of our startup life where we really don't know anything and we were just doing things and learning and we learned so much and yeah like when we started the brand i remember 
I was at, we did, because we had no budgets. We did everything the lowest budget way. I invited all of my good-looking girlfriends from different cultural backgrounds with different color to come to my home. And we set up like an entire photo shooting studio in my one-bedroom living room. We would do everything the lowest budget way. And yeah, the best way to test things out is to have a brand ourselves. That's why we started. And while we're doing that, we learned that there's so many problems that comes with fashion manufacturing and sourcing, which obviously is what my mom's company does. And I never thought that I would want to inherit her company in many ways. That doesn't sound sexy. That doesn't sound exciting. I've had so many more years of education. I could do better. That's always what I thought. But when we, when we experience a problem ourselves firsthand, we realize that something should be done here and there's great company and product to be built in this space. So basically we were, so both of my co-founder, both my co-founder and I are from China. So we already naturally have a lot of benefits and a lot of advantages in sourcing. Most of the fashion products come from China anyway. And we ordered a few products, different products, and each of them probably 10 pieces. And when they arrived, we were just in big shock. Like we were missing some pants, the colors were not right. And I think the box were straight up like being cut off into half. So we lost half of the product all the way here and we were counting the pieces. Everything was really off essentially. And I remember my mom's company, they even helped us in like doing some of the quality check and checking the quantities, but things still got missing all the way from China to the US. So that's when we realized that so many processes need to be built. And if we are experiencing this problem, like we cannot even imagine for people who had zero idea about Chinese who could not even navigate the website, like how are they able to do this? So that's when we decided to pivot our product into fashion sourcing. At the time it was wholesale sourcing because that was our experience to start with. So that's the idea we used to raise our pre-seed last summer. That's also the idea that we have had been running from last April all the way to last December. And while we were doing wholesale sourcing, we were learning other things on the way. And most importantly is that if we directly source from manufacturers, it is very hard to truly have a control over the supply chain, meaning that mm. we don't know if the product is actually of good quality. So when brands, when customers purchase from our platform, they end up getting really shitty products. They will associate that with our branding. But the truth is we are a marketplace with brands, on, with manufacturers on the other hand. And as the, quality, the quantity fill up, it is very hard to control the quality for each pieces. So that's how we decided to dive deeper into actual supply chain problem. I think that's also a problem we're trying to avoid because it seems extremely overwhelming. Like how do you make a close? How do you coordinate the work among so many different players in this process seems to be really daunting and intimidating to both of us. So we were avoiding it until we realized that we cannot really avoid it. And also if we are avoiding it, many other companies are also avoiding it. And that's probably where the goal is to be digged. Here's a question that we ask all of our guests. What is success to you? What does that mean to be successful? I think success to me has a lot to do with create and have your creation being recognized and being 
truly useful to many people. Uh, if I think about what I'm doing right now, I would really want to solve a problem through my creation and identify the problem and the people that will, that are affected by the problem and really alleviate their pain points in that way. So in that regard, that's what success is. But I think to have a, like the definition of, to me, successful is important, but it's not the most important thing in life. To me, learning is very important. Continuous growth is very important. Love is very important and connection is very important. So I think those things are parallel to success. Yeah, that's really interesting because you really broke down. There's two layers to this question, right? One is, how do you define success? And I guess there's a hidden question of whether success is the most important thing in life, right? Because you could interpret the question as, what would you consider to be a successful life? And sometimes people will say, that means I have love, I have close relationships, I help other people, right. et cetera, et cetera. And it's not just like outwardly, quote unquote, success that society would see in you. Yeah, yeah I guess like automatically my brain assigns success to be career oriented and society function oriented, like me as a useful entity in the capitalistic society. <laughs> That's what success means. But my successful life, as I said, I think involves many other things and they are equally important. Yeah. So this is about flipping the script. You get to ask us a bunch of questions, anything you want to chat about, anything about us, any topics you want to bring up. How do you guys think growing up in China has shaped the way you live in the U.S. today? To answer this question directly, I mean, shaped everything, right? Shaped, basically shaped my worldview. Like I said, I draw a lot of energy and I appreciate a lot of beauty from traditional culture. Heavily influenced by like Taoism, traditional arts. So yeah, I would say like that, that shaped a lot of my worldviews. I think one of those things is that it helped me realize just how important, going back to what a successful life looks like, just how important being truly integrated into people around me is to me. So I think having come to the U.S., learning the language is the first step. But there's actually a lot of time and effort that went into really integrating into society such that I feel like I have a wide social connection net, a wide network of people I enjoy from friends to close friends to work friends to other circles. So I think that's one way it's helped me understand more about myself and what I value in life. Because when you're born somewhere, you, you don't really think about it as consciously. You don't need to try as hard to fit in. Yep. The other aspect is, I think it's been tremendously beneficial. By being an outsider, I think it makes me question a lot of things. One example I like to tell people is, when you grow up with something, you just take it for granted. I think I have a unique perspective on a lot of things that's not quite Chinese, nor is it quite American. One example of having that unique perspective is that I, growing up in China, I was never a minority. I was never an outsider. And something I realized when I hang out with some of my Chinese-American friends is that when you grow up somewhere as a member of a minority group, you take some things for granted. You feel a certain way. Oh, of course, I'm not going to be the president, right? Of course, I'm not going to be the most important person in this group. And I never grew up with those subliminal impressions in my head. So I always felt, of course, I'm the most important person. Who else is going to be that? I think there's also like female and male like thinking over there as well. Even if both coming from China, there's differences in the assumptions that you make and the voice you tell yourself inside. I think obviously like the white male, in many cases, they have the most right to speak and right to act in the American society. 
And each culture has its own hierarchy based on how the culture is evolved. And in China, obviously, we are mostly major- like Han, Han people probably have the most right to speak and right to act among us all. And males, in, on the other hand, also have more than female in many ways. My family is definitely an anomaly. But if you, if I go to my bigger family gathering, the guys are always talk the loudest in the dinner table. And the women are always the ones that prepare the dinner and wash dishes afterwards and don't talk as, as much, especially when it comes to com- conversations about politics, big finance, finance, how the world is going, those type of conversations. So you grow up observing that, I think. Yeah, like I definitely grew up also abs- absorbed a lot of those as well. And, but thankfully, my family is anomaly, so I never really questioned like women's power in creating things and in building something. That's super interesting. I've always thought about the idea of growing up in China and then coming to the U.S. and never questioning that I could be great and do great things. I used to attribute that to the fact that I wasn't a member of a minority group, right? Marginalized group. But I think you hit the nail on the head. It's actually more about privilege. I think when you grow up in a society verbally or non-verbally, you start to learn the pecking order of this society, which groups are on top and which groups are on the bottom. And growing up in China, being a male person, I guess you just take it for granted that all the best things are possibilities, options for you. Yeah, that's really interesting. So I yeah. grew up with more privilege than <laughs> perhaps a counterpart that would have grown up here with the same identity. I want to ask more about it, actually. Yeah, like how do you navigate the part of like like integrating integration and the part of being proud of who you are and remaining the core part of who you are like what part of you is to be integrated what part of you is to be proud of who you are i don't think i ever fit in anywhere even if i was in china right i don't think when i was in china this is a contrast between i think you two and me i was never like the i guess i was the quote-unquote very good students when I was younger, but when I was in middle school and high school, I was never the good kid in school. And I never felt I fit in, even in that education system. And when I went to the United States, that got amplified. I remember there was a lot of conflicts, especially in the first year. I think what I mean by aggressively Chinese is, both, is mostly be very proud of your own culture to the extent that you don't feel threatened about others' culture. Right, because I think if you're truly confident about your own backgrounds, about your culture, about your identity, you get to appreciate both your culture and others' culture. You don't feel an urge to either integrate or to convert your own culture to suit the needs to be integrated into the mainstream. My approach is it's kind of case by case, right? I treasure beauty. I treasure beauty in conversations. I treasure beauty in ideas. I don't really want to limit myself, whether that idea is mainstream or not, right? Whether this person conforms to certain identity or not, I take it case by case, or at least I try to, right? I don't feel the need to draw a circle. Oh, this group of people are mainstream, so I need to integrate, right? So I guess that's my approach. I, I try to ignore that boundary, right? I try to dissolve mm-hmm. that altogether. No, I'm not 100% successful, but that's what I try to do. My experience with what it means to really integrate, but yet not really try to become the same. I think there's an important difference between fully integrating and assimilating and becoming the same. I think fundamentally, I see the world 
as one that is going to continue to unite and integrate. I know that the recent events will have us see the contrary, but I think these are all, we're talking about the Ray Dalio book, right? There's really just cycles of things. And I don't think the overall trend, knock on wood, that something really drastic doesn't happen, right? But the overall trend is towards integration. And it's not really much of a political belief as much as just a simple observation that when communication and travel becomes easier, as technology has enabled, it is only a matter of time before people start to integrate more deeply from a cultural and from an economic perspective. Just like how China today didn't always used to be so unified, all sharing the same spoken dialect, for example, Mandarin is now, maybe that's a bad example. But my point is, not everything used to be as integrated as they are today. And I think it's not because one political school was dominant. I think it's just the irreversible trend. It's like you can't separate the cream from the coffee after you've put in it, put it in there. Yeah, so I think to really integrate into somewhere is to find what we share as humans, is to find that we don't have to identify as the same thing. I actually care very little about those adjectives personally. And I think this is something that Seed and I maybe share is we've been using words like Chinese, white, male, female, this and that. But I think, of course, we're impacted by that. That's the society we live in. But ideally, I don't value, I don't really think about those labels and boundaries and which bucket you fall into all that much. I'd like to think, and I'm pursuing this way of life where none of that matters. Those labels don't matter how I really get to know someone. And I think these podcasts is a way for us to overcome those biases because it's hard not to have biases. That's how our brains are wired to work. That's a survival instinct. But the more you get to know somebody, the longer a conversation, a deeper conversation you have with them, the more you can see past those descriptors of your race, your gender, your nationality, your origin. And I think that's how, what it really means to integrate and to belong somewhere is to find that deeper shared common ground and to work so that part of assimilation so deep down to your identity that you don't need an hour of conversation to build a bond with somebody. It just, you exude integration that you can talk to anybody. And within a few minutes, they're like, hey, this person isn't the stereotype I had in my head, which I may not have liked. I actually really enjoy my time with this person. And those are probably some of my favorite moments in daily life where I talk to someone who, I don't know if I want to get into a bunch of examples, but I'll talk to someone who you would think, oh, this person is a hardcore far left or far right person who may be anti-immigration and I'm an immigrant. So by default, they probably wouldn't like me, but some of my, these people that I've met became good friends with me and we have very different beliefs, but it doesn't matter because we share something deeper in common. One last thing I would add is what you describe essentially is the ideal that proposed by Confucius, right? Right? I don't know how to translate right. that, but maybe harmonious, but not identical, right? So that, that's one difference, Hanson, that I have, right? I actually value difference a lot, which is why I think I'm aggressively Chinese. The reason why, Hanson, I think you're comfortable with talking to anyone is because you know your identity won't be threatened, right? You feel very comfortable. Your core is stable so that you don't feel threatened talking to a very different point of view. And maybe you will make modifications, your core is stable. So that's why I think it's very important for people to find their core identity. I remember when I first got to the U.S., I tried so much to become friends with people who are different from me. Because in college, you always see Chinese people, they get together and always spend all the time together. I love spending time with my Chinese friends too. But I always feel like something is lacking if I don't have friends that are different from me and hear opinions that are different from me. So I make a very active and intentional effort to get to know them. 
But my way of getting to know them is to show what I can offer. And what I can offer is definitely not what they have already. So I would cook hot pots and invite a lot of random friends and professors together to a house and as a way to teach them about my culture and also try to learn more about them. Yeah, and even towards today, I think in New York, it's a very diverse city. And this is a city where I think having a speak a different language and having accent to your English is a common, more common threat than being an American and never have left the U.S. I think fundamentally, like maybe Hans and I both have a like very deep love for humanity and you believe that there is such a beautiful common thing within human that you try to seek and try to find within different people. Yeah, I think I always have a lot of love for strangers. And that's very strange. I would do a lot of couch surfing when I was young and really try to learn about people that are so different from me and have so much kindness towards strangers. Yeah, Zichi, that's I think that's interesting because I think both of us, and I think C to some extent as well, we actively make an effort, right, to mm. go. Yeah, the fact and... that you guys are doing this podcast, inviting strangers to talk about this super deep topic. I think we both put a lot of effort into exposing ourselves and exposing others who are different to, to share our differences and to bring people together by sharing and celebrating those differences. And when we were talking about beauty being a sense of belonging to something greater that transports you to this thing that's bigger than yourself, I think the way it fits in with that and why I think living abroad and making friends across different backgrounds is beautiful is that you know, when the river, when two rivers meet, sometimes you see two different colors of that water and they mix and they become a greater river together. And you see those little eddy currents of the colors mixing, right? Those little swirls in the water. I'd like to think that we are those little swirls in the river of human history, that we are the little parts that ultimately change the nature and the future of humanity and one that I think ultimately trends towards more integration and unity. I love that. So poetic. I think I told you this before, right? The ideal world I want to live in is a world with a lot of pride, but no prejudice. I think there's too much prejudice nowadays, but not enough pride, right? People are actually very insecure about themselves. That's why they are convinced they need to persuade people to appreciate them. That's why I think it's really important for us to understand where we come from, what's our culture. To use your water analogy, to use your river analogy, right? Yeah, it's pretty to see two river, two streams merge into one. And that's probably the trend to the future. But I also want to know where do they come from, right? I want to see the whole water topology. I think that completes the story. Maybe that's why we're co-hosting a show. It's good that the world has all types of... <laughs> people, there will be you remaining water that we can trace back to. <laughs> we all come from China, where at least most me and most of my friends are not spiritual nor religious when we were growing up. There is no real big environmental context as in what to believe in when it comes to questions like life and death. For me personally, I've been thinking a lot about it since I came here and especially recently after reading some books, but I'm curious for you guys, have you thought much about where you go after death and have you made an attempt to learn more about some religions here, like Christianity, where many of the people practice 
yeah, just any ideas, any attempts that you've made in learning more about bigger questions in life? I guess first we have to define what's spirituality, right? I think I'd like to think I'm a spiritual person because I don't, I don't think I have answers to all the questions in this world. And so some of the comfort I need to seek has to come from something that is intrinsically mysterious, right? If you think about physics, right? Physics, people think physics is the truth, but it's not. It's approximation to truth. It's, a, it's the best attempt from rational thinking to arrive at a hypothesis that can't be approved wrong, right? That's the foundation of science of physics. So by definition, we have a lot of unknowns. So I, def I definitely like to think I'm spiritual. And to answer your question, did I, like you said, Korean China, China, it's largely a non-religious culture, but I would like to think non-religious doesn't equal to non-spiritual. I think there's a lot of traditions in spirituality in traditional culture. Taoism, I would like to think, is intrinsically very spiritual because it's a way for you to connect to quote-unquote nature. And for me, that's actually a definition of spiritual. It's the humbleness for you to submit yourself to something greater, to the bigger unknown. It's the courage to take on comfort into not knowing everything. So yeah, so that, that's what I would argue is that spirituality. Interesting. It's a, hard, it's a tough act to follow on that one. Yeah, I think when I say China for, as being now spiritual, maybe I was, at least for my experience growing up, it felt to me as a very materialistic society. Yeah, where obtaining goods is the priority of the daily life. At least that's people around me and my experience growing up. That's what I assign as now spiritual. But I do see a lot of very traditional Confucianism or Taoism culture that's deeply embedded in our daily life as well. Would you think the materialistic trend is actually deeply Western? Well, I think the recent, at least, proliferation of materialism was driven by capitalism, right? Mm -hmm. This idea that the economy must grow, production must grow, and that growth is measured in material wealth and assets. But doesn't the tradition go back further? I know this might be a digression here, but doesn't that tradition go farther back where Chinese people would have this money god and they would, that's a, sort of a, a lot of Chinese merchants would have these little money god, little, what do you call those little things? Statues, little statues in their shops during festivities and holidays. They would say to each other, hey, I hope you get rich, go get some money. So I wonder if that really came with the rise of capitalism or there's something that actually is pretty materialistic in at least part of Chinese tradition farther, farther back than the most recent iteration of capitalism in China. I think the mass population, regardless of culture, are practical. I think we have to remember that. We like to romanticize, especially me, ancient China but or ancient Europe, it doesn't matter, but we have to fact check ourselves that most people live in poverty back then compared to now. So I would argue probably majority of people don't really have the privilege to think about <laughs> what is spirituality, or they just want to make a living, right? The, the whole, whether the culture is spiritual, whether the culture is materialistic, is largely survivor bias because the culture we treasure, mostly from, in Chinese, called shidafu, which is the kind of upper ruling class, right? But I think there's a very stable currency, like you mentioned, of practicality, of, of chasing money, right? Chasing prosperity, material success for the mass. And I think that's probably true for every culture, in my opinion. Yeah, I was going to say, I actually, the more I think about it, the more I think spirituality a lot of the times, and when we say materialism, we really mean like the 
emphasis on money and material wealth, those are orthogonal, right? Jesus pretty much said something to the effect of it's easier for a camel to pass through the point of a needle than for a rich man to get through the gates of heaven. Something like that, right? And I don't see all the very Christian nation of the U.S. hating money. I certainly think that those two things aren't mutually exclusive for most people who are practical. Though I think, Zichi, when you said being materialistic, I think you meant it in the metaphysical sense that there is no such thing as spirit, right? We are cells, flesh and blood. And when we die, we don't, our quote unquote spirit doesn't go anywhere because there is no spirit to begin with. At least that's what officially we're taught in school. Maybe they don't right. say that explicitly, but we're not taught to be religious. And I think that's a big difference between China and a lot of other cultures where you're absolutely taught what to believe. My girlfriend went to Catholic school, for example, and that's not very, that's not, that's quite common in the US, right? To go somewhere where they will tell you what happens after you die. China does not have that, at least not at scale. But to answer your question about my thoughts on spirituality, I think I'm deeply agnostic. I, I don't know. I think that's similar to what Seed was saying. I think it's a great mystery. There's a lot of things that we don't know, and maybe there are things that we just simply can't know. So one example I heard, this was a TED Talk I heard a while ago, I think sums it up quite well, is this idea of asking somebody who's scientifically minded, what is a train, right? When a train runs on a track, what is really happening? Now, the people who are smart will say, well, the train is actually a collection of different materials. There's metal, there's glass, all these things, and we can calculate the friction, we can model this train, and this is physical reality. That's reality, right? But what's the deeper layer of that reality? Most people would say, if you dig deeper, there's atoms and molecules that make up those materials we described, and we can keep digging deeper down to the quarks and what happens at the scale of Planck lengths and Planck time, we don't know. But this guy makes the argument that's actually the wrong way to look, quote unquote, deeper. All you're doing is you're taking a microscope and looking at a smaller scale of the same layer of reality. The analogy he gave was great. It's when you have a computer screen and you got a file on your desktop and then there's the recycling bin. What happens after the death of the file? What happens when you drag that file into the recycling bin? The approach that we've been taking from a scientific perspective is to zoom in and say, when you drag this file into the recycling bin, the screen's actually made up of pixels. And when you drag this file, the RGB value on this bitmap matrix changes over time to represent this analogy that this file is now dragged into the recycling bin. Okay, what if we zoom in deeper, right? There's no more deeper, like you're looking at a screen. The screen fundamentally is an impenetrable abstraction of what's truly happening behind the scenes. Someone who can only look at a screen will never know what really happens when a file gets deleted because they never get to know the computer architecture that powers that screen, the bits that live on some electronic device. All the like deeper layers of reality is fundamentally unknowable to someone who only sees the screen. And the argument they make is that is how we live our lives. Our consciousness fundamentally does not give us visibility into deeper layers of reality. All we're doing is zooming in deeper and deeper onto the same shallow, flat layer of what's observable. And I think spirituality, in my definition, is this great mystery beneath that layer of observability that we ponder, that we question, that we probably will never know because we were never made or naturally occurred to make that observation. And the closest I've come to experiencing spirituality was when I was taking a walk and meditating in the wild, this is when I was about to graduate college and I was having a lot of existential questions about what I wanted to do. 
and I was sitting by the stream. And I don't know how long I was there, but I had this realization all of a sudden, thinking about what is life, right? Why are we here? What are we? And my realization was, we are the question. The fact that we wonder what we are is what we are. And when we die, we don't get the answer. But it's fine. It's resolved anyway, because when we die, the question dies with us. Without a question, there's no answer to be sought. So we are part of the greater mystery in the sense that we, I think, therefore I am, is a little bit similar to that realization, right? We wonder, therefore we are. And when we stop existing, we stop wondering. And maybe it's not about what's under that veil of mystery. It's about the fact that we always wonder. Yeah, it's almost like the universe doesn't really know about itself. So we are part of the queries it generated to understand itself. The short version of that is I have no clue. I have no <laughs> idea what's happening. Every day I wake up, I'm like, what is happening? Yeah. I want to hear more from Zichi as well. Last thing I would add is I don't, similar to you, right? I don't know shit, right? But I, I do think spirituality, for me, part of being spiritual is you take comfort in that. And the most, one of the most beautiful thing I read, it's very similar to, you, you quoted this on the podcast, Carl Sagan said, we are all stardust. There's a similar thing that written, which is the Tao philosophy book. In Chinese, it's called, that's the ideal state for you to be in, right? After you die, you, you mingle back to dust. And He Guangtongzhen, I, I don't have a good translation, but probably soften your own glare and mingle with the dust. You reunite with the universe itself and uh, take deep comfort in that. I don't need to live beyond death. I don't need to curry beyond death. I take comfort in, I know I will once again unite with the universe and live on in that fashion. I see it. I fantasize sometimes. And I say I fantasize <laughs> because I want to believe it. I don't really believe it. Yeah. Or I, sometimes like belief is not really rational. Sometimes it's this feeling. Yeah. And I'd like to think that we are part of the universe. We don't come from the universe and then return to it. We, before we existed, during our existence and after our death, we are always part of the universe. Mm. And therefore, I was there at the beginning. I was the creation, just like you. We all are. Yeah. We were all there at the beginning. We were all there through all of this. We now live through this iteration of us, which is unable to see past our beginning or death of this life. But we'll all be there at the end in the deeper sense that we're all part of this process that is existence in the universe. I think it's a beautiful way to look at it. The reason I say I don't really quote unquote believe it or feel it is that it doesn't change the anxiety and the dread that knowing that this ego, that this existence, that this awareness is temporary, that all of this is going away. I don't really have peace beyond death. You almost have, at least to me, for me, I almost have this easy button I can push and just declare I don't give a shit. Oh, what's your spirituality? What does it mean to you? So similar to you guys, I have no absolute confidence in the version of spirituality I come to at this moment. But it's a continuous discovery and I actively seek for knowing more, read about spirituality much more than other subjects that I read in my life. And so I grew up 
in China, re- not really having any spirituality deeply ingrained in me and started to think more about it during my existential crisis time in college and started to read about it and talk to people who have religious belief and really fantasize that. Like the, it almost feels like you have all of these questions about what's the meaning of doing everything can be then easily answered by this belief. I almost wish that I had that growing up and not really having that. I was basically, I, the version I told myself was I need to come up with my own religion and my own faith and Bible for my, my life as a book. So that has been the mission for the past few years. And this year, I read a book that kind of was really helpful in pulling together all of these different things I read and combining the themes of multiple different things that I believe in my life and pulling them together. Yeah, for those who are interested, you can check out the book is called Abduction to Nice Planet. And the book is written by a Australian author who lives in France, I think. And it's basically about his personal experience which he claimed is not a fiction, but actually what happened. He was taken by an alien and the alien wanted to show him life beyond Earth and wanted to show him what happened before, during, and might be happening to Earth afterward. And essentially, there is a system that explains how life works and how universe works. Different planet has its assigned different energy level. It's pretty much similar to the Christian, the, the heaven in the Christian world, and I'm sure in different religion, there's different verbiage to, to ascribe that version of the world. And one, one feature I remember from that world is there is no gender and each person has both female and male within them. And they are all very beautiful. And the way the author interpreted was the fundamental important thing in a human is it's thinking and their character and by having things like gender in our earth which is the first energy level planet lowest energy level planet it really makes it difficult for people to really know other people and create a lot of barriers and blocks in the human connection and creating love all of these high energy things so that that's like an example of how different planets operate like things operate entirely differently. There's different physical principles, physics principles in different planets. For example, on life's planet, another thing is you don't really have to go somewhere to get something. You think about it and things will happen. So the fundamental principle of how things work is also quite different in different planets. And there is just an infinite amount of love and peace within the nice planet. And now comes to our planet, which is... Earth, and this is said to be the first planet, the lowest energy level planet. And there's a lot of things that are set up to be the way that we live. And there's a reason why depression is so common in our planet. There's a reason why it is very challenging to remain peaceful and to remain in love with someone that you love. And there's a set of barrier that comes with the default setting of how our planet is being set up. That gives me a very interesting perspective into looking at life and understanding its imperfection and why sometimes like things just don't work in many ways and understanding that it's a continuous process to grow and to there's infinite amount of room for you to get better because we are still stuck in the first planet 
And there's a life afterwards, like after we graduate from this first level, first energy level planet, depending on how you perform, we will go to other planet or remain here and become a different, different animal rather than human. So this is also very similar to the reincarnation idea in Buddhism. And I think there's, there is some sort of truth to that idea, because if you think about different stage of your life, you're always being grouped into people that are similar to you. In classes, you have exam and exam dictates where you go and you tend to be grouped into people that are similar to you in your grade. And in work, you, it's a constant shuffling into different groups in your company and different company after companies. So that shuffling is continuous and you will always be dealing cards and being put into different groups based on your whatever metrics the grouping should be. And I think when it comes to life and death, it's definitely not being to be determined by how much money you have. <laughs> it's definitely mm. not to be determined by how many houses you have, how many cars you have, or even who you get married to. It's probably some much more intrinsic, something that is very fundamental to you, something you can work on that has a very equal opportunity for everyone to work on, no matter where they are in their life, no matter what culture they come from, no matter how educated they are. So that's pretty much how this book has affected the way I see this. I have two questions for you on this, actually. First is, wouldn't you find this, this system or this book deeply unsatisfying? Because from my naive perspective, it doesn't really answer the core question. It describes like a cosmic, almost like a caste system, right? You need to go from level one all the way to level line, and there's a bunch of levels in between. But who designed this? What's the purpose of having this, having this caste system at a cosmic level at all? Isn't that just defer the question further away? You would find that kind of unsettling for me, right? What if I arrive at the ninth layer of this caste? What's next? Or is that the final decision? But who make the, who make the statement that this is the final destination for my journey? And then my second question for you is, taking this analogy or taking this system, do you think... Don't you think like the reason why, do you think it's equally valuable for the people who are at the first, first level compared to the higher energy people? Because I feel like they all describe experiences that uh, completes this quote unquote caste system. I was telling you this in the kind of the pre, pre-show. And then one of the quotes from Shi Tieshen, which is a Chinese philosopher, quote unquote author, I like a lot is uh, he said, it's not the Buddha that teach people to arrive at nirvana. It's the other way around. It's people that help Buddha. So I always felt that people's suffering is actually really valuable to complete this answer. Hansen said, we are the, we're the question itself, right? And I think it's very valuable for us to struggle. It's very, it's very twisted, but I think the struggle itself is also valuable. If everybody's at ninth layer or that ninth level, how do we even appreciate the permanent joy? At all. Good question. So the first question is whether it is unsatisfying to know that this is the system is set up this way and not truly answer why the system is set up that way. Yeah. I guess for me, what I found fascinating or the reason why I appreciate this concept is not that I was seeking to understand why the system is set up that way. It's more so I'm trying to understand my experience, like 
why am I experiencing what I'm experiencing? My why is our earth like this? Right. And it, I think it provides a pretty good perspective to answer these questions for me. In that regard, it is not unsatisfying to see. I, and I agree with you. I don't think it has answered the question of why, like the higher, the even higher energy than a life planet designer decides to design this system. And why do we even exist? Why is there even the first level planet? Why don't they directly de destroy all of these and only keep the highest energy level? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, to be fair, very few spiritualities and religions that I know of actually explains that, right? One of our earlier episodes was with a good friend of mine that is Christian. And I don't think we quite understood from the Christian faith why everything was set up this way. It was just, while well, God works in mysterious ways. Why did he create us in a certain way? Why did he punish us for our ancestors for doing what they did in a specific way? Why did they drown the entire world? Like, why was the setup a certain way, right? Why is there heaven and hell, et cetera, et cetera? There's some level of explanation, but if you keep asking why, you get to the fundamental layer where there is nothing underneath, at least nothing recorded and agreed upon in that religion. And so everyone starts to have their own personal explanations and guesses. So my point is just, that's not a knock on the book per se. Yep. It's a deeper question about any belief system and whether you find that to be unsatisfying. Yeah. To, to, at some point, you just have to take a leap of faith and believe in your random Jesus. Yeah. And your second question is... Yeah. Why do we think higher energy people are more important? Yeah. I don't think they are more important. And I think you were also asking that what happens after you get there. I remember having this conversation with my neighbor because she's a deep Buddhist believer and she would talk about things like because she believes in reincarnation she believes in truly like your the cause you, the deed you do in this life will influence the next life and like she believes that there is a heaven you can enter if you if you can do well and you can end the circles of suffering in life and I would always ask why is this circle of suffering I actually enjoy my life here it's good to experience ups and downs so you appreciate you don't appreciate highs if you don't have lows etc like i had this belief due to my limited experience of only having experienced highs and lows and believing that in order to experience highs you need to experience lows i do remember a few moments of my life where there is just absolute pure peace and love and serenity many of them happen during like meditation in the nature, like what Hanson said. And would it be nice to remain in that state? I would think so. In human life, for example, I often find myself really suffer from boredom because I naturally do feel boredom and then I have to do things. It almost feels like I have to fill up this emptiness within me by creating things. And this creation will then naturally vibrate in highs and lows. And if I don't really have that need to fill things in and like this is a state many people meditate to achieve, but I do think there is a higher level of consciousness where you do reach and you are able to enjoy that level of peace and happiness. And objectively speaking, I think that is a better life than having to constantly go through ups and downs, highs and lows in my personal ordinary life today. Yeah, this could be the constraint of rational thinking, right? But if I'm reasoning through this, I'm deeply skeptical 
there will be happiness or there will be serenity if you don't have a reference frame, which is suffering, right? Like you only treasure your working nature, your meditation in nature, because you live a very busy life, right? If you if you that's your if your baseline is actually meditating all the time in nature, that's your new boredom, right? Like I deeply think. I guess I find comfort. That's just my way to deal with anxiety, basically. I think this is a part of package, right? This is part of the beauty. I only get to enjoy the high because there are lows. But yeah, this could be just the constraint of rational thinking, right? which is our own, our fundamental flaw, potentially. So Seed, I don't have a grand unifying spiritual theory to present, but I think a theme in my sort of more philosophical conversations I've had with people is that you remember the opening chapter to the Tao Te Ching, right? The very first sentence basically says that the Tao that can be told is not the real Tao. Yeah. And I think that's a very deep sentence. My interpretation is that anytime we try to describe this deeper reality, this spirituality, it's literally something that cannot be described, that cannot be reasoned through. And all of us attempt to draw a picture of it, but this is fundamentally such a deeper and bigger thing that we're just not capable of creating a lossless image. And so it's entirely possible that all these ponderings, all these descriptions of it are true to some extent of some greater, deeper reality, that they all make sense, quote unquote, make sense, because is making sense even a real requirement for spirituality? I don't know. I guess my point is just, Maybe there are many things that rationally don't seem to make sense and don't seem to be consistent and don't seem to be satisfying, but that may or may not be an important dimension to what makes a quote-unquote good spirituality. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm... And I think a lot of it is also very cultural, like cultural as well as personal, like what you relate to, how you find, where you find comfort in. And for example, I think people coming from more Eastern culture might feel much more related to Buddhism. And that could have been something to do with our ancestors or the wives that have witnessed witnessed some of the early uh, happenings of Buddhism in reality. Zichi, it's been a great pleasure having you on the show, talking about ever deeper topics that I frankly am not all that qualified or knowledgeable about. But I really enjoyed the conversation. Again, thank you for coming on the show. 